Would you turn your Bibles with me please this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And please stand with me once again. And uh, let's read our text together this morning that we've been reading through. 1 Timothy 1, 8-17. Let's read this together in unison. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might be displayed His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, You deserve all the glory, all the honor. Again, we thank You for Your salvation that You have worked in our lives. We thank You that though we are the chief of sinners, though we are guilty of idolatry in our hearts, though we are guilty of turning from You and not giving You thanks, but seeking to satisfy ourselves in the things of this earth, yet You have, you have been so kind to us, Father, and patient and good merciful and gracious, You are to be glorified. Your salvation is astounding. It is majestic. It is, it is wonderfully glorious. And we thank You that You have poured it out upon us through the Holy Spirit. Father, as we come to a conclusion this morning of our study in biblical sexuality, specifically as we seek to understand how to to think rightly about homosexuality and minister to those who have indulged in that lifestyle, we ask that You give us wisdom. We ask that You would fill our hearts with an understanding of our own sinfulness and Your great salvation. Give us humility and gentleness. Give us hearts that see each other the way You see us in Christ. We pray that You would be glorified for Your great work of salvation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> this morning, as I said, we, we're coming to the conclusion of our current study on the Bible and homosexuality. And certainly, throughout this series, we so much more that could be said, so many points of interest or, or study that could be gone much farther into. We've laid some reasons out why the church should talk about these things. We have laid out a biblical foundation for marriage. Very important step before we can understand why God thinks of homosexuality the way He does. We've shown how the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as sin against God. We've demonstrated that the Word of God provides answers that we can give to a homosexual friend who presents arguments in favor of his or her lifestyle. And so this morning, I want us to consider some concluding applications for Christ's church in light of what we've studied. And that's really the title that I've given to this, this final message. 
the Bible and homosexuality concluding applications for the church. What are we to do with all of this that we've been discussing together? There are many things that could be said, but and, and I hope that maybe in, in days in the head we can look more deeply into other specific aspects that certainly you and I have both thought of throughout this time. But I want to focus on just six points of application this morning. Number one, and I'll just put these up on the board, and they're just kind of all some exhortations to us as we, as we conclude things. Number one, be equipped to declare a biblical worldview, God's law, and the gospel. That's really the foundation of what we're coming to in this series. Are you equipped with a biblical worldview, the law of God, Can you articulate that? Can you explain these things to someone who is seeking salvation? And can you you clearly and accurately communicate the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me refer you to a few passages here. I'm reminded most, most often when I think about this, I'm just thinking most often of Matthew chapter 28. A text that's very familiar to you where Jesus gathers His disciples together right before He's ascended into heaven, He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here you have the statement of the Great Commission. And there is not one Christian, there's not one believer, not one true disciple of Christ who doesn't fit into the category of those who are to make disciples. God saves us in order to call others to salvation. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31, you see Paul giving his message there in Athens, and he does a classic job of communicating a biblical worldview. Where does he start in that sermon, that message to the, to, the, to the people there? He tells them there is a God in heaven who created all things, and in Him we live and move and have our being. And you remember where he goes to at the end of that, the end of that message? He says, now God has appointed a day on which He will judge all. And He has appointed a man to do that judging. And we know who that man is because He's raised Him from the dead. And now God calls all men everywhere to what? To repent. Well, we may not be able to give a message quite like the Apostle Paul did, but can you communicate a biblical worldview like that? Show the need for repentance and point people to Jesus Christ. That is really part of what we have come to with this series. We need to be able to do that as the body of Christ. That's who, that's who we're called to be. Ephesians 4, 11-16 talks about what the church does as it gathers. It says that God has given to the church gifted people so that the saints, all of us, will be equipped to do the work of ministry, speaking the truth in love, growing up in the image of Christ. Can you speak the truth in love? Can you make disciples? Can you explain to people your biblical worldview that there is a Creator, that He has spoken through His Word, that man is sinful, that God has given a law, but that there's a Savior. Can you communicate those things? We must be able to. 1 Peter chapter 13, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Call us to this as well. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. You hear that? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All of us, especially in days like this, especially when there is a hostility toward the body of Christ and toward truth, we are called by our Savior to be ready, to be prepared always, to make a defense, to explain why we believe what we believe, and why we behave the way we behave, and why we say the things we do, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. How do we, how are we, come, how do we come to be equipped to give a biblical worldview? To speak God's law and to point people to Christ, what is, what, is the, what is the tool that God has given us to equip ourselves? What's well, the Word of God, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be what? Complete. Equipped for what? Every good work. So here, here's the point. We're not going to stop homosexuality, right? We can't ignore it. We can't approve it. What we can do is stand on Scripture and speak a biblical worldview, speak God's law, speak the Gospel. And we need to be ready in heart and mind to do that. And that means we cannot be apathetic or half-hearted about the Word of God. We can't be half-hearted about the truth. Or Christ. Right? Jesus is not someone you can ignore. He came, lived, died, rose again, has ascended as Lord and is returning. That's not a truth you can ignore. Or be apathetic about. We can't ignore His call to the world to repent and believe the Gospel. We can't be apathetic about His call upon our lives. Each one of us need to invest our lives to making disciples from those places that God calls us. And we cannot draw back from someone who is involved in a sexually perverse lifestyle. They need the Gospel too, just like anybody else. So we need to be ready. Let me give you some additional tools, and I think I've mentioned some of these already. To help you to be equipped with a biblical worldview and how to communicate that uh, to someone who's struggling or is living rebelliously in a lifestyle of homosexual sin. I've already talked about Love Into Light. Read that book. It will help you to be able to communicate the gospel to someone who is living a homosexual lifestyle. Love Into Light by Peter Hubbard. Another good one that maybe some of you have heard of is The Same Sex Controversy by James White. And then, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. And it, she talks about how she lived a lesbian lifestyle and how she came to Christ. Very, very helpful. Number two this morning, not only must we be equipped to declare a biblical worldview, God's law and the Gospel, but also to speak with humility and gentleness. When we looked at 1 Peter 3, I hope you noticed that the text talked about those words. It says to be prepared to make a defense in verse 15, but then it says at the end of verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's a very important part of our Gospel witness. We are called to speak the truth. We are not called to be arrogant or obnoxious as we do it. If we, we are we're called to speak the truth with humility and love and gentleness, and respect. Let me, let me show you a text that helps us with this as well. Not only 1 Peter 3, verses 13-17 to 17 that we just read, but also turn to Titus chapter 3. It's kind of ironic in a way how we as believers, we've been given so much grace and kindness from the Lord and mercy. And He saves us. 
don't we so quickly forget who we were and who we are in our sin? And then we turn around and look at the world who's still enslaved to their sin and treat them like, what's wrong with you? Right? And that comes across as arrogant and obnoxious instead of compassionate and merciful and saying to them, I know why you are the way you are. If we, if we have a good biblical theology of human sin, we understand why they are the way they are. And that explains why we were the way we were. And that's what, that's what Paul points to in Titus chapter 3. And he helps us to, to understand how we can actually be compassionate and respectful and humble as we communicate the Gospel. Look at this, Titus 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive. He's talking to this pastor Titus and he's pastoring a difficult church on the island of Crete, which was a difficult island to live on, according to Paul in this letter. And, and he's telling the church people, he's telling Titus to tell the church people, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. obedient. Be the model citizen. Obey as far as you can as, you, as long as you're still obeying God. Be ready for every good work. Verse 2, to, be, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now you could just hear the audience growing, groaning. Right? And you're th- where they're thinking about their, their, their employers and the people that work for them and the other people and their neighbors and they're just thinking about the other people on the island of Crete and you're like, you've you got to be kidding me. And, and the, the local mayor or whatever. It's like, i got to be courteous to these people? I, I can't help but avoid quarreling. Gentle? And why does he say to be that way? Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. You can be gentle and courteous and patient when you remember who you were. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Remember who you were and remember how you were saved. You didn't save yourself. Right? You don't get a badge of honor for getting out of that lifestyle. That all goes to the glory of God. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what? What is that? Next three words, right? Say them. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us, not because of good works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's thinking of those two things. Who was I before Christ saved me? And I didn't have one part of saving myself from that. And you look at that unbeliever and you think of those same things. I was where you are. And you can't save yourself either. You're a slave. So I'm going to show you gentleness and courtesy because I want you to see the love of Christ through me. Doesn't that make sense? Humility. Humility is considering others more important than ourselves and being more concerned for their interests than our own. And we can't pretend to be humble when we're not. That's the thing about it. People can see right through false humility and that will discredit the Gospel we speak. We need to clothe ourselves with true humility of Christ. And we do that by understanding God's view of sin, just like this text says. God's view of, of human sinfulness, of, of judgment and salvation. You see, homosexuality is no more worthy of hell than our own sin. Do you believe that? We tend to think of the sin of homosexuality in incorrect categories. And therefore, we develop a pride toward homosexual people that discredits the Gospel before them. Let's think about that for a moment. What kind of categories and comparison do, comparisons does the Bible speak of when referring to homosexual sin? Let's, let's play with that a little bit. Think about it. We know this. It is a sin upon which God seems to bring swift and severe earthly consequences. Unlike some other sins. 
Genesis 19. I mean, how many, how many uh, societies of people does he send fire down on? Right? That's unique in redemptive history. Well, he did send the flood, right? And that was for any and all kinds of sin. But post-flood, we see God doing things like this. Notice the punishment prescribed in Israel for homosexuality. Leviticus 18 and chapter 22. We looked at that. It was death. Romans 1 shows the, the downgrade of human depravity. And it says there in verse 32 that, that those who deserve such thi- or do such things are, are worthy of death. It, why does God seem to bring swift and severe earthly judgment on homosexuality? I think it is because it is a sin that is extremely harmful to God's image bearers. That's one reason. It, it destroys humanity. I mean, just by nature of it being incapable of reproduction, it will destroy humanity. And the diseases and the co- earthly consequences, that's one thing. It's a sin which also then more importantly perverts the glory of the image of God in us. Not every sin is a perversion like this. It's not always unnatural. But this sin is unnatural. It's a twisting. It's a perversion. And it, and, and it, is, it, it dishonors the glory of the image of God. It is a sin which signals God's judgment upon people. That's what we see in Romans 1. But listen, here's the point that I want to make. It's not a sin that receives greater eternal condemnation and judgment than other sins. Well, how do we know that? Look at Matthew chapter 11 with me. And I hope this will help build in us a sense of humility when we, after even we read this text. Matthew 11, 20-24. I want you to read this text with me, or I'll read it to you, and you ask yourself the question in your mind, what sin does Jesus say His judgment will come down more harshly upon than homosexuality? What is the sin? I'll read it to you, and you think about that. Verse 20, Then He began to denounce the cities that where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus said, Woe to you! Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be called exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for for the land of Sodom than for you. That is a sobering, humbling text. What sin is he talking about? That will will bring greater judgment than than to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the sin of Seeing and hearing Christ and the Gospel and what? Saying no to it. Religious hypocrisy? You know, I've heard Pastor John MacArthur say this one time, the most dangerous place to be for an unbeliever is where? In church. Because you hear the Gospel again and again. And you have every bit of revelation being poured out to you week in and week out, and you say no to that, that's the person that will receive greater judgment than a homosexual. You see? You see how Jesus categorizes these things? That ought to humble us greatly. I think of Proverbs 6. Remember how Jesus, or how the Old Testament says God feels about these sins? It says He hates them. Proverbs 6. Verses 16 through 19. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Remember, we trace that word? Yes, the whole testament says God thinks of homosexuality as abomination. But what else does God say is an abomination? Look at them. Verse 17 
What does God hate? What does He think is an abomination? Haughty eyes? A lying tongue? Any of us have told a lie before? All of us. What about pride? Does that ever enter our heart? Of course it does. A lying tongue? Hands that shed innocent blood? Heart that devises wicked plans? Feet that make haste to run to evil? False witness who breathes out lies? The one who sows discord among brothers? Is that sobering? God thinks of those things as an abomination as well. We need to have God's view of sin, judgment, and salvation. And that will humble us. That's how you clothe yourself with humility. And that humility will then also give us a sense of gentleness. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is, a, is one of my favorite texts about gentleness in ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, there's something really special and and helpful in those three verses that help us to know how to be gentle. When you come to ministry, when you come to disciple making, you're going to come to opportunities where you want to quarrel. You're going to come to opportunities where you don't want to patiently endure evil that's coming back at you when you're trying to help someone. There's going to be days when you don't feel like being gentle. Well then, where do I glean that gentleness from? The next phrase says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The first thing that I see there is that God in His sovereignty is the only one who can grant repentance. Your human forcefulness, which is the opposite of gentleness, will not bring it about. Right? You, you force people, we force people to do things and we're not gentle. Why? Because we want them to do what we want them to do. We want to throw human effort at it and we hope that whatever comes out of us and toward them will make them change. And when we realize, you know what, change is in the hands of a sovereign God, only He can grant repentance, then you realize, man, my human force, it's not going to change their heart. But God has chosen to use the love of our gentleness as it carries the truth, that's what He chooses to use to change people. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit working through us as we speak truth. That's what God uses to change people. Gentleness comes from trusting God's Spirit. Gentleness comes from being aware of God's sovereignty in the process of change. And then remember, dear ones, that Humility, gentleness, and respect, listen, they don't equal compromising the truth though, right? We must understand that. Gentleness, humility, and respect doesn't mean we compromise truth or condone sin. They're not the same thing. We must continue to speak the truth and not give in to pressure or manipulation from the homosexual agenda, even if it comes from a family member. We're not called, or we are called, we are not called to separate ourselves from immoral people who do not profess Christ, right? We're called to separate ourselves from, from believers who choose to continue in immorality, but unbelievers, no. We're, we're called to associate with them in such a way that we can tell them the truth and point them to Christ. But again, we do that with gentleness. So be equipped to speak with humility and gentleness. Three, pray and ask God to work. Be committed to praying privately and with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at our assembly for the salvation of the lost. Matthew 6, 9-11 through 
is what the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right? We exist to make God's name great. Hallowed be your name. Right? And what happens when someone's saved? Isn't that part of making God's name great? Your kingdom come. Isn't the salvation of the lost part of God's kingdom advancing in this world? Your will be done. Isn't the salvation of the lost something that God loves to do? So to pray for people to be saved is to pray for God's name to be exalted, His kingdom to be advanced, and His will to be done. And so we say, God, give me daily bread. Give me what I need to be used by you so that your name is exalted, your kingdom is advanced, your will is done. Luke 11, 1 through 13 talks about prayer too, and just talks about the goodness and generosity of God, and tells us if, if you, fathers who are sinful, know how to give good gifts, won't your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you remember in that text? That the friend came to the other friend asking for bread to give to somebody else, right? What if we come to God, our Father, who's so generous like that, and you pray and say, God, will you please give salvation to my friend? Please exalt your name in their salvation. Advance your kingdom. Do your will. I think of, turn with me to John 14. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will He do, because I'm going to My Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. You see, there are so many teachers that rob these verses of their power by saying that these verses are talking about doing miracles and raising the dead and all this stuff, right? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? That's not what He's talking about. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to exalt the Father by speaking what the Father wanted Him to speak. And that's the work that Jesus did that we can do. When we, when we speak truth, and when we communicate law and gospel, we're doing what Jesus came to do. We're, we're speaking the truth of the gospel to exalt God in the salvation of sinners just like us. And Jesus says, pray about that. And I'll do it. In fact, you'll, you'll do more than I did. Why? Because the church is so much more than the one person of Christ who lived on earth, right? And because that one person of Christ is now ascended and seated at the right hand of God as Lord of all, and He is working in His church, the, the myriads and myriads of people all over the world who are speaking the truth for the glory of God. And He says, you pray. You pray about that for the exaltation of My name and the salvation of sinners and the proclamation of the Gospel, and I will do it. Look at John 16. Verses 23-27. through 27. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of Me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in the figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in My name, and I, will, and I, and I do not say, that, say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and I have believed that I came from you. Jesus says ask, and He'll do it. And you know what? This is exactly what Jesus prayed. 
As we pray for people to be saved, for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom, that's what Jesus prayed. John 17 in His high priestly prayer. Look at, look at what it says here. Jesus is praying in one, verses 1-19 through 19 about these disciples that He had spoken the truth to in the name of God and they received that truth and believed that God sent Jesus as Savior. And then in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. What if we take up Jesus' prayer and say, God, please continue to save people that those who hear the word of the apostles and the gospel will believe in you and become one. We're praying right along with Jesus. We should, I mean, should we not think upon the authority of these texts, that since it is the Father's will and glorifying to Christ that men and women come to Christ for salvation, that if we ask, God will save sinners? Shouldn't we think that? I think we should. So let's ask boldly for sinners to be saved and keep asking persistently until God chooses to save many for His glory. We don't know how many God is going to save, but we know that He will save many. The Bible tells us that. So let's pray. Let's ask boldly on the authority of Christ for God to save. Be equipped to declare a biblical worldview, God's law and the Gospel. Speak that with humility and gentleness. Pray and ask God to work. Number four, prepare to disciple and serve those whom God is saving from homosexuality. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God sent each of us someone to share this with? And they got saved. And you brought them into the body of Christ and you baptized them and they got acclimated into the body of Christ? Wouldn't that be awesome? Isn't that why we're doing this? What if God, I hope God does that. That's the point. We must expect God to save sinners in our community through the means He has chosen. Which is what? Our preaching of the Gospel and our praying. God doesn't have to save people through that, but He does. That's His choice. So as God saves sinners, including homosexuals, we must be ready to disciple and to serve them. Think on that. We need to be ready to show them Christ-like love right here in our assembly and through individual relationships. We need to be ready to help them to resist the temptations of the flesh and grow in Christ-like. Assist them with, with the many practical steps in that battle, in that fight, in that process, that, that progress, just like we do for each other. Sexual temptation is a reality for many, if not all of us. We need to be ready to welcome them into the body of Christ to serve them and to be served by them. Think about 1 Corinthians 6.11. Remember that verse? We've been through that text lots of times. Paul looks at this church, this Corinthian church, and he says, such were some of you. Paul could look out at that audience and see some of the people who used to be idolaters and homosexuals and adulterers and so on. And he says, now you're not that anymore. You're washed. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're part of the body of Christ. Oh, I want eyes like that, don't you? To see it like that. To see the saving power of God in that way. This is, this is who they were. This is who we were. Now we're the church. We have a new identity because we've been washed and justified and sanctified. 1 Corinthians 12. The body of Christ, right? Everyone who comes to Christ in salvation becomes a Spirit-filled, Spirit-gifted part of the body of Christ. Except for some sins? No. Every believer. Each one of us who are in Christ are a gifted member of His body. How does that happen? Well, let's look at it one more time. 2 Corinthians 5. Would you look there? 
I hope you've noticed that I keep going back to some same texts over and over again throughout this series. They're wonderful to help us think through these things. 2 Corinthians 5, look at, I want to back up and start with verse 11. Think about these glorious truths of how does God bring people into the body? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that's where we are. We need, that's our, that's our hope. That's our goal. That's our life. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Notice this, that one has died for all. He's looking at this church. One person has died for all of us. Therefore, all have died. Died to the old life, right? And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. If people in Christ have died to the old life and risen to a new life, then, verse 16, is true. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, thus we regard Him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We don't think of each other in terms of who we are externally or who we were in our previous life that is now dead. We think of each other in Christ as new creatures. That is an, that is an amazing perspective. And he says in verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how that perspective happens. We can look at each other as the body of Christ. God can take any kind of sinner and save them. He transforms us. And no matter what our previous sins may have been, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ and members of the body of Christ. That means that we must not create levels of privilege in the church based on what our sin was and wasn't before we were born again. We must see one another as God does, as God sees us in Christ. And we help each other grow. Galatians 6, 1-5 through 5, talks about that. It says, when you see another brother or sister caught in a trespass, you, you bring them alongside and you restore them and you lift them up and you help them overcome and you carry their burden with them. That's life in the body of Christ. And God takes every person He brings in the body of Christ and He makes them into His workmanship. Ephesians 2, 1-10. through 10, He takes dead people, right? You are dead in trespasses and sins. And He makes them His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. From dead to workmanship. That's how God works. So let's be prepared to disciple and serve those whom God is saving from homosexuality and be used of God if He will use us to help them grow in Christ and walk in good works that He has planned for them. Number five this morning. Bring up our children in the truth. Be equipped to declare a biblical worldview. Speak with humility and gentleness. Pray and ask God to work. Prepare to disciple and serve those whom God is saving. And again, each one of these could be an entire message in itself, right? But just throwing out these for you to think on, and we can continue to chew on these together in the days ahead. But number five, Bring up our children in the truth. Turn to Ephesians 6.
And of course, I can hear Paul, in a sense, referring to Deuteronomy 6, 1-25. Please mark that passage down. There's the Old Testament version of Ephesians 6, 4. Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. How many of you kids heard that verse this week? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is vital that we as a church continue to encourage one another to bring our children up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, listen, lead your family in family worship. Teach them a biblical worldview. Teach them the law of God. Teach them the Gospel. Brothers, listen, you are sinning against God and your family if you are, leading, if you are not leading them into family worship and not teaching them the truth of God's Word. That's what you are called to do. It says it right there. Fathers. Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't wait for the world to inform your children about marriage and intimacy from the world's worldview. You get ahead on that. You teach them that. Teach your children about biblical manhood and womanhood from the Scriptures. You don't want your kids' minds to be informed by what the world thinks about sexuality. You want to take them to Genesis 1 and show them what God created and how God looked at all the creators of this is very good. That's how you want your children to begin to think. You want to build that wiring in their thinking by God's grace. Don't let the world do it. Protect your children from the dangerous influences of the homosexual agenda, even if it comes from a family member. And that's not always easy. And not always comfortable. But you must protect them and teach them the truth. It doesn't mean they're not exposed to the lies and the corruption, but they hear about those things from you. And you explain that to them from a biblical perspective. They need that. And let me just encourage you, brothers, if, if you don't know how to lead your family in family worship, or if you're coming back again and again to the same crisis in your marriage, don't wait and do nothing about it. Don't wait for your wife to lead into the spiritual change. You need to see the criticality of these struggles and reach out to others in your local church for discipleship and spiritual exhortation in these areas. These are critical for your spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of your family. Make a move here, brothers, by the grace of God. Model biblical manhood and womanhood in your marriage to your children. That's one of the greatest gifts you could give to them. And by God's grace, our children will be drawn to the love of Christ demonstrated through biblical marriages to desire that design. And let me encourage you this way, moms and dads, as you're teaching your children, especially your little children, as they grow, you're teaching them about, about what it means to be a, a, man, a young man and a, and a young lady as they're growing up. Let's not overreact if some of our children's behaviors push the boundaries of our personal view of manhood and womanhood. You can relax about that. You know, for example... Maybe your four-year-old son says he wants to carry a purse or play with a doll. Oh no! Right? Or maybe a daughter says, I want, I want to put on a tool bag or I want to grow up to be a mechanic. It, it's okay. Simply continue to nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't assume that an adult perspective and understanding is behind their words and behaviors. I know we can do that sometimes. They don't have that adult perspective yet. Keep teaching them and trusting and waiting for God to manifest His design for them through and beyond 
their years of puberty. Remember, you are nurturing a young plant. That's, that's the words that God puts here, right? Bring them up in the discipline instruction, the nurture and instruction of the Lord. You're nurturing a young plant to become just what God designed it to be. And that will require feeding and pruning and bending and watering and supporting from the Word of God. And keep encouraging your children in the goodness of biblical manhood and womanhood that they do manifest. That's, that's something to greatly encourage. Encourage your daughter when she walks in the way of a woman who fears the Lord. Encourage your son when he walks in the way of a man who fears the Lord. And pray for your children constantly. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their sexual purity. Pray for their sanctification. Pray for their sexual safety. Pray for God to provide for them a believing spouse. Isn't that what it's about? To grow up and to continue to build a legacy for the glory of God. And, and God, if He so chooses, right? It's all in God's sovereign hands, right? We, we plant, we water, and wait for God to bring the harvest. If God so chooses, He will do His work slowly over time as He uses you to plant and water the seeds of the truth in their hearts through ongoing teaching and prayer and loving relationships. That's what God calls us to. And finally this morning, trust in Christ and take courage. Be equipped to declare a biblical worldview. Speak with humility and gentleness. Pray and ask God to work. Prepare to disciple, serve those whom God is saving. Bring up our children the truth. Trust in Christ and take courage. Would you turn with me then to Matthew 5? And now we sort of come full circle with where our series began when we talked about the laws that have begun to be set in place in Canada, and even are being pushed for here in the United States that will really threaten everything that the church does. Making disciples, communicating the truth, calling for repentance. And when we look at that and we begin to be concerned about our personal well-being, it's important that we look to the words of Christ, trust in Him, and take courage. Matthew 5 Verse 10, listen to Jesus. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In, this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does these, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is life in the kingdom of God. When we belong to Jesus Christ and He is our King, we can hear Christ's words and know that persecution and reviling is a blessing. And we'll be rewarded in eternity. That's how we need to think about this. This that's coming. Romans 8, you need to remember that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not tribulation or persecution 
or famineness or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Right? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You need to remember some of the things that Peter says, who certainly listened to Christ. Turn back to 1 Peter, but this time, in addition to chapter 3, I want you to notice what Peter writes into chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But what? What does it say? Rejoice. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus just said that. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, we, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. That's our response to what is coming. Rejoice and entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. As the progression of depravity continues in our society, as Romans 1 perfectly portrays, there will be more resistance and hostility to the truth, to Christ, to His representatives, the church. Standing with and speaking from Scripture on the issues of biblical sexuality will at some point, dear ones, listen, it will cost you dearly. That's what we see here in the Scriptures. That's what we see happening around us. Maybe it will cost you a friend or family relationship. Jesus anticipated that for us too, didn't He? We at some time will be called to let go of mother and father and brother and sister in order to follow Christ. He said that exactly. It may even cost you your livelihood. Right? That is happening in the United States already for positions that the Scripture calls to take. Livelihood is being threatened. Or even taken. Freedom. Even life may be threatened or taken. There, there have been people in Canada who have been imprisoned or put in jail for a time because of the truth. What are we to do then? Trust in Christ and take courage. Keep speaking the truth in love. Listen. I think of Matthew 6 where Jesus says to us, don't be anxious about your life or the things that support life. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What? All those things will be added to you. If God gave you life and can sustain your life, can't He not provide those things that keep you alive? That's what we have to do. Wow. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And He will provide for us. Our Father knows all that we need even before we ask for it. In closing this morning, again I remind you, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to Christ. And He said what? I will be what? I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the end of the earth. To the end of the age. And that word of encouragement and command was given by Jesus Christ, as I said before, right before He ascended. Remember that? Right before He ascended into heaven to take His position at the right hand of the, of the Father as Lord. And right now, that Christ 
reigns in us through the Holy Spirit. He is sanctifying us and guarding us and keeping us and making us one by His intercessory work. He is at work advancing His kingdom. We're not going to lose this no matter what happens to our bodies. Right? Our earthly existence. We're not, this is not going to be a losing battle. Christ is accomplishing the will of the Father through us. Christ is advancing the kingdom of God through us. He is bringing glory to His Father in the church in spite of any opposition that we face from the world. Think of all that Christ is doing all over the world in spite of opposition even today. Whether most other countries have it a lot worse than we do, and God's kingdom is still growing and advancing and thriving. That's because we have a risen, ascended, powerful omnipotent King and Lord seated and reigning. And He's in us. The Spirit. And He said He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16-18. Ephesians 3-20-21 and Drink in these words. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The power at work in you. Throughout all generations. There's not some generations of time that are more difficult from the world, and so Christ is like, well, not going to work in that generation. No. All generations. This power is at work in the church for the glory of God and through the power of Jesus Christ. So, so by that power, by the power of the ascended Christ within you, don't let this particular point of pressure that we've been talking about from the world discourage you. Or tempt you to be silent. Or tempt you to back off on speaking the truth in love. Keep walking in the truth. Keep speaking the truth in love no matter what. And look to Christ in all things. Trust His mighty hand over all that's happening. And know that His mighty hand will care for you in every circumstance. No matter how challenging they may be. Before we pray this morning, I want to ask you one more question. Are you born again? Are you part of the kingdom of God? How do I know that? Well, has the Spirit of God brought you to the place where you know that you have sinned against your Creator? Do you know that this Creator is holy and good? and you have worshipped and served other things and given yourself to those other things, and and that is sin against Him. Do you know that? Do you realize that you, just like the rest of us, are worthy of His wrath because of that? We, We have spurned His love. We have refused His generosity. We are not grateful. We haven't submitted ourselves to Him. We are worthy of His wrath. Are you convinced that you cannot do anything to save yourself. Did you know that? You cannot do anything to save yourself. Only Christ can save you from God's wrath. And so have you trusted in Christ? Have you received Him as the Son, the eternal Son and Savior and King of all? Are you resting in what He did to save sinners like us? His, his life to make us righteous. His death to take our guilt and punishment. His resurrection to make us alive spiritually? Are you resting in those things? When when you stand before God and He says to you, why should I let you live with me? What are you going to say to Him? Christ and what He did is my only hope. Is that where you are today? If not, I want to urge you to believe the truth of the Gospel this morning. Turn away from your love for sin. Turn away from your own efforts to save yourself. They will not work. Trust in Christ alone. And if you receive Christ and rest in what He did for you so that you can be saved too, then you have God's promise that you will be forgiven of all your sin and you will be given the gift of eternal life. You have God's promise. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
don't go away today without knowing that you have Christ, that you're forgiven, that you have eternal life. We have all the gospel we need right here and every promise of God. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, again, we think of the things that You have done in our lives and we are depending upon the saving power of the risen, ascended Christ. We can't do these things that You call us to. We trust in You, Lord Jesus. You're our King. You're our Lord. You live in us by Your Spirit. We want to be equipped with the worldview of the Scriptures and the law and the Gospel. Build Your church in that way. We want to be praying for safe salvation. We want to teach our children. We, we want to do what You have called us to do. Lord Jesus, enable us. Equip us with everything good that we need to do Your will. Work in us that which is pleasing in Your sight for Your glory and for the glory of the Father. Lord Jesus, You are the Good Shepherd. You are the Great Shepherd. This this is Your work. You will move it along. And so when we speak by Your power and Your authority, and we invite others to trust in You, and when the days of hostility come, help us to not fear. When our earthly things are threatened, help us to not fear, but to continue to trust in You and take courage. Thank You for the absolute safety of being in Christ so that we can know that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, because of the work of the saving Christ, help us to believe that. Really when it comes to it, when the things of the earthly life are threatened, and yet the call to make disciples and to press forward following our Master is clear, and those two things are at conflict, help us to remember that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help them to be so much more than words. May it be our strong conviction and unwavering hope. Father, thank You for these days of peace where we can still gather and be ready and get ready. Help us to fill ourselves with Your Word and to not fritter away time on emptiness. But may we truly live by Your grace, by the power of the Spirit, in the calling and purpose for which You have saved us. Bless us now also as we remember the saving work of Christ by sharing the Lord's Supper together. May You be glorified and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.